From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. All righty. Well, we have about 80 people here. We're going to go ahead and get started. So I just want to start by welcoming everybody to the uh, first LinkedIn Live for FPNA Today. During today's episode, we're going to discuss budgeting, forecasting, best practice. And I have with me four distinguished FPNA professionals. And so I'll just do a quick introduction of each of them, and then we'll give them a minute to tell a little bit more about themselves. So I'll start down in the bottom corner for me. We have Annette DeYoung. She currently works for uh, DataRails as an FPNA solution architect and pre-sales. She had 20 years in accounting and FPNA. And, you know, has been through many a budget forecast. We're really excited to have her. And then we have Michelle Govensimi. Did I say that yep. right? Oh, good. <laughs> and she comes to us from the UK. So it's evening for her. She, uh, you know, writes about FPNA quite a bit, has her own blog, works doing consulting quite a bit with technology. And so we're really excited to have her. She's had a distinguished career in multiple finance roles. And then next we have Aaron Saladay. And he comes to us from Bigger Pockets. He's the CFO there and he's been through many different forecasts. He's worked in private equity, investment banking, FPA. We're really excited to have him. And then last we have on the panel is Zachary Ryle. Zachary comes to us from Salt Lake. He works for uh, Peak. He's a director of FPA there. He's currently working on his MBA. And so we're really excited to have him. And next, I'm just going to give each of our audience just a minute to tell a little bit more about yourself, maybe where you're from. You know how you got into FPNA, and then something interesting about yourself outside of uh, finance that you could share. And this time we'll start with Zach. Sure, thanks, Paul. Yeah, so as Paul said, my name is Zachary Ryle. Um, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, so the good old Pacific Northwest, and and then I've bounced around uh, across the U.S. for a little while now, and, and settled back in Salt Lake City, where my wife is from. I got into finance because I. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I really liked numbers and uh, problem solving. So I thought I was going to be an engineer, and uh, I went to do a couple years of engineering. And I said, "This is awful. I hate it." And one of my buddies was just kind of watching and laughing the whole time. And so he, when I when I announced that I didn't like it, he said, "Why don't you try finance?" And, and that's what got me in. And, and I've kind of just loved being in the space ever since. Fun or interesting fact about me. I ran track for two years in college and then decided that it was one of those I wanted to do any longer and switched over and started playing rugby and played rugby for the next two years and had a blast. Thanks, Zach. Aaron? Great. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, so I'm Aaron Salde. I'm the CFO at Bigger Pockets. Um, I joined uh, going on two years ago. Got into finance originally just based on the practical uh, knowledge that uh, you could potentially apply to your life outside of uh, your career. Something about me outside of work. I'm an avid mountaineer. I've climbed five of the seven summits, so the highest peak on each continent. Um, so the only two I've left would be Everest and um, um, Antarctica. Great. Michelle. Hi. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. I'm so excited to be here all the way from representing the UK. I'm a qualified accountant with 15 years in industry specializing in financial institutions. I've held senior non-traditional finance roles, so that's in FPNA finance business partnering across major finance institutions in the UK, as well as in South Africa. My career was predominantly um, in South Africa. I think uh, my interesting bit and a little bit about what brings me here is I am a future finance enthusiast 
very interested in the profession and how data analytics technology, the impact it's having on our profession. That's what brings me here. I, I blog about it. I speak about it. And connect with me on LinkedIn because that's where I share a lot of information about what I'm finding out about this profession and how we're evolving. Great. No, I appreciate that, Michelle. And it's an exciting time to see technology and see how FP&A is changing and how it can be an enabler. So thank you. Annette. Yeah. Hey, thanks. I am uh, a FP&A solutions consultant for DataRails. I've been here a whopping nine months. Uh, prior to being in, obviously, pre-sales, I spent the last 23 years in finance and accounting, never once growing up that I ever want to be an accountant. I actually <laughs> fell into it on accident. I know, it's very weird. I was actually a math major when I was in college, and I found out I didn't want to teach. <laughs> so it's like, what do I do? And then all I could, my, my I remember my uh, college advisor was like, well, Give me one class that you really liked. And I'm like, well, there's that one accounting class. That was pretty cool. 23 years later, here I am, finance and accounting. I've never looked back. I actually absolutely loved it. And of course, until, you know, you get to that point in your life and you, you want to change. And, and that's where I'm at. And so something outside of uh, the profession, a good friend of mine and I have been running a nonprofit children's theater. in. Uh, so I'm outside of like Chicago area mm-hmm. in Illinois. And so we've been doing it for 15 years and we are a nonprofit and we believe that every, every child, no matter what, if they want to explore the arts, we will write a part for them. We give everybody a role. Everybody gets to participate. And so we have really found a lot of, uh, you know, joy in, in just helping kids and inner city kids, especially. That's great. I mean, it's obvious you're passionate about that and always good to give back and do it in a way that feeds your passion. So that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. So just so the audience knows, if you guys have questions throughout, you know, please go ahead and type them in the comments. As I mentioned, and we'll monitor that and try to cover them. Where we're going to start here is obviously, as everybody knows, either some of you have already started or you're going to soon start budgeting process if you have a typical calendar year of January to December. We've all been through the grind, the late nights, the 50 different versions of the, the budget the leadership coming back at the last minute, right? A lot of challenges there. So we're going to ask our you know, panel here a number of questions. And we're hoping this will you know, give you guys some advice of how they think about budgeting and some you know, tips as we're going through this. So the first question I'm going to put out there, and we'll start this one with Michelle and just kind of work around, is you know, if you look back at your career and you look at the, you know, the annual budgeting process, what's the best advice you've been given or, you know, if you can't think of maybe a best advice, the best advice you give for kind of managing and the budgeting process. Okay, great. I think um, if I reflect on it, there's two pieces of information I'd like to share. So just a little bit, I came from a traditional accounting background into this FP&A finance business partner world. I was trained as an auditor at Deloitte. By, with my BCom degree in hand, and here I am as a finance business partner. And the biggest piece of advice is, and for anyone who's gone the accounting route and finds themselves having to do a budget, is revenue is not one line in your PL. It is not something that you look at as one line that you just gloss over the way you do everything else. Revenue is key. Your time needs to be spent understanding your revenue, unpacking your revenue gathering data about your revenue when it isn't the budgeting part of the budgeting timetable, if it is downtime, if you have that, 
It should all be about revenue. What are your channels? What are your products? What makes this revenue move? And that is where you should be spending your time. Second piece of advice, and I can I can speak on that, take the whole hour speaking about that. So <laughs> my second piece of advice is we shouldn't be surprised that there's going to be a budget. And, you know, we would be like, hey, it's that time of year again. Yes, it's a critical business tool. It's going to happen every year and it's going to happen at multiple times. We're going to be talking about it. But we should always be talking about the plan. Uh, so it is a critical business tool. It isn't a tick box. So let's not be surprised. Let's not wait for financial control to send the timetable. It's going to happen. So we, we just always have to be prepared and make sure we have our data in order. Great. I appreciate both those advices. And I agree with the comment we have in here from Rama that says, understand key drivers. That's another great, great point. So why don't we go to Zach next? What would you offer to that question? Yeah, my, my biggest thing, I think, my learnings in, in the time I've spent doing is, is communication. I found so many times that everybody submits their budgets and then it goes up to exec to review and then you start making trims or cuts or additions. And I've seen so many times where that doesn't ever get communicated back to the budget owners. And so then to them, they're just like, what's the purpose of a budget? Like they don't care anymore, right? I could just think they just say, I could just throw out a number. You're going to trim it anyway, right? And so as we, as I've, I've gone through several different businesses now and, and worked on revamping their budgeting process, my biggest thing has been to communicate with them. Here's what I'm expecting from you. Here's what I'm looking for. Here's what's going to happen next. And here's how I'm going to communicate those changes back to you. Um, and so that they're aware of what, where we actually end up, where we land, and they can give their input. And then they feel like they truly have ownership at that point of their budget. I love that. I mean, I can't emphasize that enough. Communicate, communicate, communicate. Even if you think you have communicated it, do it one more time to make sure. Because if there's any chance you didn't, it will come back to bite you. So Always uh, does. <laughs> yes, I, I've had a few. Aaron? Yeah, I, I would absolutely echo those comments. And I think it's a great question. You know, I think the best piece of advice that I've been given throughout my career on the budgeting process is really that accountability and alignment is more important in the long run than accuracy. Um, at best, uh, you can get close, but it's never going to be perfect. So a budget development only just be used as a tool to focus and influence organizational behavior, but not necessarily predict it. That's great advice, Aaron. As I like to say, if I could predict it, I would be retired on a beach somewhere because I would have invested in the stock market or real estate or whatever, if I could predict what was going to happen with you know a high degree of accuracy. It really is about the process and getting you to think and you know figuring out what's needed and making sure you have a plan in place than trying to hit an exact number. Completely agreed. Annette, what would you offer? Yeah. So I think the best piece of advice I actually got from my CFO one time, and she said, don't be afraid to scrap what you have and start over. Right. I mean, we talked about everybody, of course, as the whole panel said, all great advice that I've also heard. But that one was like, wait, you mean I can just get rid of what we've been doing for the last 20 years and start over? <laughs> right. With with something that might actually work, you know, and so that was just having that create that freedom to be creative and actually create a budget that works today compared to when it was first established 15 years ago was fantastic. It really was. So yeah, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to scrap what you're doing and start over again. Great. Appreciate that, Annette. So we have a few questions. I think we're going to take one or two now and we'll uh, take this first one here and we'll get your thoughts on it, Michelle. So someone asked, is a static or you know rolling budget better and how best to deal with the rigors? Of, and I would say rolling budget, which really I kind of think of a rolling forecast, right? You're 
you're reforecasting. So maybe could you take that question for us, Michelle, and give us your thoughts? Sure, I'll, I'll give it a try. Well, for me, they, they both have their place and they both have different purposes. The budget is going to be decided in advance, signed off, and that is what bonuses, etc., are agreed on. It is the budget. It's decided on certain principles and it's static values, static numbers, it exists. And it doesn't move, though that is the commitment made. We will constantly be going through a process of revised forecasting, however, you know, however practical that is or how you work. But within FPNA, I mean, that is the role, right? To be revising, to seeing how close are we to whatever targets we've made initially to that budget. Then as the business changes and as the environment changes, how is that moving? So I can't say one is better than the other. They both have their place. For managing business performance, we use the rolling forecast uh, to look at where are we going to end up, where are we going to end up in our five years, et cetera. Constantly testing, are we going to meet our commitments to the market? The static budget is something that exists for its own purpose as well. So I think it's important to understand the two and that they both have their place and they both are pieces of, of, of management tools that are used. Thank you. Appreciate that, Michelle. So Aaron, I'm going to give you this next question from Rama here. He asked, you know, top down based on strategy versus bottom up. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how you think of that, especially being in the CFO seat, seeing the strategy and being involved in kind of, you know, the executive level meetings, but also owning, you know, the budget and the forecast and all that. So how do you how do you think about those two? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, I echo some of Michelle's comments. There's two different uh, use cases for top down versus bottoms up. So top down, I think you have to start with your strategic plan. And once you have your strategic plan and those kind of guardrails of where your North Star is for the business over the next three to five years, from there, then you develop your annual goals and your annual priorities that should align to that strategic plan. Underneath those annual goals, you have departmental goals, departmental priorities that then roll up into your overall financial plan or financial forecast for the year. That financial forecast for the year should be bottoms up and should be built um, you know, on a line by line basis. Uh, but the five year top down plan may not necessarily be built on a bottoms up basis. And again, it depends on maybe the scale of the organization at that point in time as well. But you know, I think there's two different use cases for top down versus bottoms up. And you need both. Top down, top down is, is, is fundamentally for strategic planning um, and long range planning versus bottoms up is for more near term planning. No, thank you. And I, I would agree with that. Typically a bottom up near term. It's also a great way for the business to see where they believe they can hit to compare that to your top down. Because I think everybody's experienced this. You build it all up and it comes in short of what leadership wants. And then the fun begins of trying to figure out how do you get to that number? Can you get to that number? You know, what's the commitment? So it's it's great to have both those views because they're never going to be the same. There's always going to be some difference that you got to resolve. All righty. So this next question here, we'll give this one to Annette. Not really a question, but some advice. Just get your thoughts on it. So Timo, and I've uh, seen him on LinkedIn quite a bit. He's not a fan of budgeting. He talks a lot about that we should move beyond budgeting and the rolling forecast and eliminate the annual budget process. So what's your thoughts on that? Because there's a lot of debate about that, Annette, and everybody has a different opinion. So maybe what's your thoughts on that? No, I agree. Stop doing it, though. No. <laughs> just because I've been, I did it for 70 years, I wish I could have just not done it. And to your point, done like a rolling budget or a rolling forecast, which we were doing anyways. 
but I also understand the purpose of an annual budget. And I think Michelle even said too, it's to establish that baseline on what you're going to be measured against, right? Now, economies change, right? A lot of your business, you know, it, there's a lot of levers that get pulled throughout the year that changes. Absolutely. But when you set that budget, right? How close, number one, how close are you to the budget? And number two, can you actually explain the variances, right? Because just because we're reforecasting every month or doing a rolling budget every month, that's great because we know, maybe we know where the business is going, but can we explain why? I think that's why a budget, an annual budget is so important because you have that baseline, you have that starting point, and now you can explain all of the swings in your business based off of this one point in time. That's, that's my opinion anyway. Thank you. And no, I appreciate that. And, you know, definitely a lot of people find value in the budget. I can see also why just doing a rolling forecast, but you're still going to have some strategic level. You're still going to have conversations. You know, a lot of the work still has to happen in the sense that you still have to plan. So there's different approaches. And I'll say there's not a, there's not a right, or I would even say a wrong answer. Mm-hmm. As long as, you know, the, the right questions are getting asked and the you're helping the business move forward strategically. That's really the bottom line, right? Is that you're helping the business achieve its strategic goals through the financial planning. And so I think that's important to keep in mind because everybody's going to have a different opinion of how to do it. And, you know, it's going to vary by industry. We will be right back. You know what it is like. 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders. Multiple iterations version control, errors, back and forth updates. You never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there. Stop, breathe. DataRails is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. DataRails takes data from all your company's disparate sources. No organization is too complex, consolidating everything into one place, secured in the cloud. Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow, FX conversion, intercompany transactions, now automated and up to date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel. Embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FPNA machine. Find out more at www.datarails.com. And now let's get back to our episode. Next question here, and we'll start with uh, Zach on this one. How do you think about forecasting throughout the year? You know, do you have an approach you like, like doing R&Os, risks and opportunities, rolling forecast once a quarter, going out 12 months, 24 months? I worked for a company where we went out, we did the current year plus three every forecast in detail. You know, so I've seen, you can see just about everything. Wouldn't recommend yeah. going out that far, but what's your thoughts? <laughs> Great question there, Paul. Now, I think a lot of it, it depends on on your business and your industry, right? What makes sense? You know, some of the people I've had the privilege of, of meeting lately work for a company that's private equity and they um, they are able to do their forecast on a five-year basis because it's pretty predictable to them. They have funds and things like that that make it really easy. And so every time mm-hmm. they forecast, it's five years, right? Yep. It's, uh, 
fun being in a startup here because every time I forecast, it's like we found something new. We discovered something new. <laughs> There's something that that changed or an assumption that was completely wrong before, right? And so we're constantly doing you know, out to the end of 2023 and then putting some really baseline assumptions out for like 2024, right? And so, you know, our, I think our goal is to get a really detailed and comprehensive rolling 12-month forecast, which then makes it when budget season comes really easy to transfer right into budget season because you already have a lot of that information. But we always try to go two years out with at least some baseline assumptions to know like, hey, what do we think is going to happen? I think that's largely has to do with the fact that we're a startup and we're managing cash, we're managing things like that, Right. So that's that's kind of my approach. I uh, I can't say that I'm a huge fan of monthly reforecasting. I think that that becomes a lot of busy work that I don't know necessarily the, the value that that's going to add. But I think, again, that depends on your business and what kind of data you have and how complicated your model is, right? I, I find quarterly is a really good place to start. And then from there, you can assess how easy was this to do? How difficult was it to do? Does it, do I, would I get value out of redoing this every month? And, and how would that help the business? Uh- I like that starting with a less frequent, especially if you're trying to figure it out and then go, okay, do I need to be more frequent? Does that make sense? Versus starting out with doing it as often as possible. Because once you do that, it kind of just becomes ingrained and then you're often it never gets reduced. Yeah. We were, we were talking before the meeting started, we were all joking a little bit about, you know, that we have these complicated files that end up getting built iteration upon iteration because we never have time to go back and simplify them. Right. Well, if you start with trying to do a new forecast every month, you're going to have that happen, right? You're going to add a new iteration every month and you're never going to have the time to go back and reflect and say, what could we have changed? What would have been, how can we make this more streamlined and more efficient? But don't get me wrong. I mean, some businesses, it absolutely makes sense to do that monthly. You just got to take the time to get yourself prepared for that. You can't just jump right in. That's a great one. And what I'm going to do is we're going to ask Aaron that question as well. And then we're going to go through a few of the questions we have in the chat. I know there's a few building up there. So just give us a minute and we'll get to those. But Aaron, what's your thought around kind of forecasting? What, how often, what method, that type of thing? Yeah, I'd say echo a lot of Zachary's comments as well, but I'm a strong proponent of a rolling forecast and actually a monthly rolling forecast. It, it depends on the company that, and, and the stage of growth that you're in. If you're in a high growth dynamic company that's changing a lot, Rolling forecast is really important to understand where you're going to be and understand current run rates. And when you have business owners coming to you and asking questions, can I advance this higher? Can I invest more in marketing spend? Can I increase my CapEx spend? If you don't have an understanding of where your business is going to be in the next 12 months based on current run rates, it's hard to make that you know decision you know in short order. So I think it, having that rolling forecast is really important. Uh, to be able to know where you're trending towards your projections and towards your overall budget for the for the year and, and make those decisions when business owners ask you those questions. I agree. And I'm a big fan of you know being able to understand where you think you're going to land, having that revised forecast so you can make smart decisions. And I'll give one example. At one point, I worked for a business where, you know, and this isn't uncommon, everybody holds back. If they have opportunity, they don't want to give it up in the forecast, right? They want to keep it in case there's that surprise. We had a business that held everything back until like the last month, we ended up coming in like 30 million better, which is a big number. It might've been 50 better than planned. And one of the VPs said, look, I held things back too, but last forecast, I offered it all up because I realized the only way we're going to know that we can invest it this year is that we have it. And we missed out on a lot of investments we could have done for the business because we were so far ahead that year. And it was a really good learning lesson for some of the other leaders. Okay. Yeah. You got that bonus, but did you get what you needed for the business? 
Hmm. You know, there's that importance. And that's just something we as a finance have to be able to challenge the business and understand it well enough to look and say, there's more opportunity. Why are you holding back? Is there a good reason? So that, that was a really kind of eye-opening experience for me that, you know, you don't think of, oh, hey, we beat it. Great. And then you think of all the other repercussions. Well, that, that really hurt us in some ways because we didn't forecast that. So next question here is somebody, you know, just one, it says LinkedIn user. So I'm not sure who it was, but just commented that, you know, the budget is static in one way and another, they talked about forecasts are being made. And that's true. Forecasts are being made. You know, the budget doesn't change though, unless- The doesn't change. Yeah. Unless the business decides to make adjustments as a leadership team, which you occasionally see, the budget is static throughout the year. Yeah, sure, the business could make some decisions to make some targets off forecast. But as a general rule, budget is locked, doesn't change, it is the targets. And the forecast is where the changes happen. So I get the point of what they're making, and there are some exceptions to that, but as a general rule, that's how to think about that. And then we have Josh here, who just asked a little bit, how do you think about FP&A and AI? So when do you feel we'll reach a tipping point? So, you know, I'll, I'll share a little bit on this just because this week I read uh, the FP&A Trends 2022 survey, you know, and they talk about AI and I want to say they said AI and ML is being used by about 26% of the respondents. Now, I would believe most of the respondents are bigger companies. So keep that in mind. It's going to skew the data a little bit. The other <laughs> thing that was really interesting is the study found only 39% of people had confidence in their budget. I think it was uh, about an 11% decline from last year. Again, not surprising, but of those that were using AI and ML, 63% felt their budget was good or great. So if they're using it, hopefully that means they're, they're using it well. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion around that. You know, you got to still have business judgment in there. You can't just take the number it gives you, especially given so many businesses, historic numbers are so different than what they are today because of COVID, Right. And so I definitely think we'll continue to see more, Josh, of the AI and the technology. The study also found that if you were using a cloud-based tool to forecast, 11% of respondents were more confident in their forecast. So technology can be an enabler. Again, they were more confident, not as much, but if they were using a driver-based forecast. And so those all play a role. So next question here, this comes from LinkedIn user. We'll throw this one over to Michelle. It says, leadership wants a number. Is that a reality? What's it based in investor hyperbole? So have you been in those situations where maybe you see leadership come with a number that's not realistic? And how do you how do you manage that? Well, I don't think, you know, the numbers are just uh, thrown out of nowhere or just for sheer, uh, you know, let's let's throw a challenge or, or let's all get rich. It's there's a reason, you know, there's uh, commitments to the market. There's what is happening um, in the industry? What is possible in the industry? Our commitments to uh, investors. So those that top-down number, as begrudgingly as many feel about it, is steeped in some reality. For startups, for example, there's you know serious investor commitments that that we have to look at in such short time periods, and and that are linked to the funding that we're given. There's loans that depend on, on the numbers that we're forecasting. And there's also like required growth and, you know, required returns that are expected. So I think when we look at it from that perspective, where it becomes, uh, those situations I've been in is where the bottom up budget and the top down target has a big gap. 
that's usually, and that's always the case, but that's usually where the, you know, there's tension and like, where's this number coming from? Where me as a business on the ground is stating what I can do. We're always going to have that push for growth and that push for innovation Mm -hmm. and that push for new markets. The business as usual growth is never going to be accepted. And I think, you know, once we're all at peace with that, it makes for an easier discussion. So, yes, I've been in those situations a lot, but I think it's guiding business, looking at the book of work of the 20 initiatives we have. And if this is what we're keeping ourselves busy with, what level of return are we getting? And can are those activities that we're keeping ourselves busy with going to give us the 10%, the 15%, or the 20% that's been up? something else and it that's the point of the budgeting process or the planning and the forecasting process we've made commitments we've said as business leaders this is what we can do this is why we're here you know these are the markets we're going into there's a financial consequence to that and that that speaks and shows itself in the top-down budget and that's just the reality i think when we take that emotion out of it and realize that Everything we're saying, when we try to manage the narrative, when we speak about, about all those great things we're doing, yes, there's this number that, that's ticking away and that becomes part of the top-down target. Thank you. And no, I appreciate that. Um, Zach, I know being in a you know, VC kind of back company, there's investors, a lot of requirement for growth. What's your thoughts kind of on that question? It just, you'll get it in new business, right? (laughs) Make up the difference in new business. No, you know, I've been in the situation where previous company were backed by a private equity firm and the private equity firm said, here's your, here's your revenue target and here's your EBITDA target. Right. And we're like, okay, all right. That's what it is. Right. And you know, they have their reasons for, for believing that they've created models that, that say that should be able to happen based off the data that they have. And, and, Usually very intelligent people are behind those things. But I think it's just an an understanding. I I think somebody made the comment before, like people are always holding a little something back somewhere, right? And so this is where the art of being a finance person comes into play. Everybody says like, oh, finance people are number people. I don't think that's true. I think finance people are people people. And to be good at finance, you have to be able to build relationships and, and build connections to your business partners so that you can go and find those places where somebody is hiding things or sandbagging things or being maybe non-committal to a higher number and work with them to get to something that they're comfortable sharing that can help you bridge that gap, right? And so if, if your business partners don't trust you as the finance person, they're never going to give that to you. And if they're not, and if you don't know them, you won't know where to poke and where to look. And so you have to really, you have to let go of numbers maybe for a minute and, and, and embrace people and, and, and use that, those relationships to get closer. Thanks, Zach. I appreciate that. Aaron, any thoughts to that? Especially the idea Zach mentioned that, you know, finance people aren't numbers people, but we're people kind of people. Yeah, I definitely would echo a lot of his comments. I think going back to the original question on when you're given a number, I think it's fundamentally, or it's important for everyone in the finance team to understand, okay, what do we need to believe for that number to be true? And then creating the metric tree around that, around here's what we need to believe for that to be true. This metric needs to go be you know from range X to Y. This metric needs to be so whether it's retention, conversion, you know some growth rate in sales. Uh, we need to believe this will happen for this to be true. And for for us to believe that, we need to make these investments in the business to to be able to achieve this. 
And then I think that then it's a conversation to, to Zach's point on, okay, here's what we need to believe to achieve this top level number. Does the business believe this? Does does uh, whoever's uh, you know dictating the number believe that each one of these assumptions is achievable? And if so, do we have data to support it? Have we tested each one of those conversion rates or growth rates? Do we have a test to support that data? If not, well, then the next step is maybe setting up a test that we can uh, you know uh, uh, test each one of those metrics along the way to understand is it achievable? But I think fundamentally, it's it's our job to be able to communicate. You know, what do we need to believe for that to be true? And to be able to uh, coordinate that throughout the organization, and making sure that you know we have buy-in throughout the organization that yeah, this this could be achievable, but we have to believe X, Y, and Z. Great point. I see you know everybody nodding their head there and couldn't agree more. I still remember you know one budget I had where we built kind of a bottoms up with the sales team, and we came up about five six million short of where we were the prior year due to some business losses. And our the general manager like, nope, we have to go in at least flat. And, you know, started layering in every imaginable opportunity possible where everything had to go perfect. I ended up leaving that business. But when I left, we were forecasted to be somewhere close. I think even maybe slightly lower than what we originally had. It was just one of those where, you know, what can you do? So, you know, it's always that balance. Sometimes you have to get to a number that you may not believe is achievable and you need to speak up. But at the same time, you know, we don't set the final number. We just manage that as best we can. So we're all going to deal with those situations sometimes where we don't think the number is possible. I even was aware of one situation in a company I was with, and it was before I got there. There was such a disconnect in the business unit between finance and the business. The finance refused to submit the business's forecast to corporate, and they were keeping separate budgets for the year, which is just a terrible way to run a business. And turned out finance was right. The other one was nowhere close to the final number. And that's where you need someone to manage the people because that should never happen. I still can't believe when I heard that. I'm like, wait, what? You had two budgets? Like who thought that was a good idea? But anyway, so next question here. And on this one, we'll start with you, Annette. So, you know, how do you, how do you think about the, you know, the finance tech stack? You know, it's importance in budgeting and planning. You know, we hear about the data challenges everybody faces, a lot of time in data prep, non-value added. So they're just kind of high level. Any advice you would offer to people that how they should think about that and manage that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tech stack. Wonderful thing, right? Because I think up, up until like maybe 10 years ago, the only thing we really had in our back pocket was Excel. We got really good at it, right? We, we taught our, ourselves how to write VBA and SQL and to get data out of our source systems and into, you know, usable tables that, of course, we spent hours and hours looking at and trying to, right, merge all that data together to get insights. Now, I think even today, everybody is still in Excel. But there are a lot of different tools out in the marketplace that can really help in aiding Right, your forecasting, your budgeting, uh, you don't have to continue to, you know, not necessarily live in the dark ages, but you don't have to continue to live in huge models, right, where you're bringing in lots of data. Because the problem with that is number one, you created it, you know it. And if I win the lottery tomorrow and I leave, all of that knowledge goes with me. So there's no repeatability and there's, there's no shift of knowledge. Right. When you're building models specifically and in Excel using the older tools, like, again, writing macros or using, you know, SQL, using, you know, any kind of connection. 
And so I think finding something that works for you and your business, right? Finding something that works for the company as a whole, not necessarily just for you. So that if you do decide to, you know, get promoted or, you know, leave the company, none of those processes are going to break and they can easily be transferred to somebody else in your department. I appreciate that. And I like how you said finding what works for you. There's lots of options and tools and things that can be done. And technology is an enabler, not a solution. Right. And I remembering that is important. I also like how you said if you won the lottery, because I used to say, hey, you need to teach me this process because if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, <laughs> and someone said to me one time, why a bus? Why can't I win the lottery? So ever since then, I've now started saying the lottery. They didn't like the bus example. So I, I caught that. All right, Zach, I'll throw that question to you about, you know, kind of the yeah, so I've done a lot in Excel. I've done I've done quite a few ERP implementations. I've put in some FP&A tools. Um, you, you name it, I've, I've done a lot. It's funny. I, I come from the the group of uh, finance people that is kind of resistant to coding and, and resistant to um, those type of things. Um, I, I like to do things maybe the old fashioned way, but I also love technology and love what it can do for us. And so, you know, I think the most important thing to to recognize is exactly what you said, Paul. Te- your tech stack is an enabler. It's not a solution. Unless you have your house in order, tech stack means nothing, right? And so you have to make sure you've got the right players to looking at the right things and understanding things fundamentally the correct way for your business before you can even begin to implement a, a tool to, to be useful to you. Otherwise, you're just going to be faster at getting bad information, which doesn't really do you any good. But I think ultimately it's it's finding the right fit for your business, right? There's a tons of great tools out there. And I think we sometimes default to what we're most comfortable with and we just say, hey, I'm going to do this, right? Because I know it. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best thing to do. There are tons of great companies out there nowadays that they've made a business out of being a system selection partner. And they'll come in and look at your business and say, hey, here's what we see and here's the tools that we know. We think that this is the best fit for you and they can help you understand why that might be better than what you're comfortable with, what you're familiar with. And the plus side then is you get to implement that and learn it. And now you've got another tool in your toolbox, right? So that's, I guess, kind of my answer to your question. Not really a direct answer, but uh, sure. that's how no, I And I like the last part you said where, you know, getting advice on these are some tools that could work for your processes where you're at. I know you and I have talked a little bit about that. And sure. I just last suggested some different vendors that might be good in your environment where you're at to look at. So it ties into this idea, like we pay people who are experts to do very specific things because having that person on our staff just doesn't make sense, right? Like you're not going to pay to have an implementation consultant sit on your staff and do an implementation (laughs) once every five years. Right. But you're going to go and get somebody who's an expert in that from outside your company to come in and help you do it when you need it. Right. And so use the experts, let them, be the experts and, and, and then you judge that against your knowledge of your business. Yep. Now, thank you, Zach. We'll go over to Michelle here for that question. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to the tech, we know it's made leaps and bounds um, in recent years and, and there definitely is uh, the tools available that can support our process. Many of them are out there in the market, really good tools. I think where we need to start thinking and where we are starting is as finance professionals is to change the way we think about the technology. You know, there was that hesitation and the fear around the technology. The tech is only going to work if we embrace it and understand the new skills we're going to need as a profession to embed it into our day-to-day. Just as we've embedded Excel and, you know, Excel isn't going anywhere, don't fear. And, you know, it's only getting better and better and there's so much we can do with it. But I think 
there's a new type of finance professional. There's going to be multidisciplinary finance departments. There are multidisciplinary finance departments. We need to open our minds to what is the data science stack? What is all those things on the Anaconda kind of uh, you know page and how can it help us with the things we can do and what skills do we need to bridge ourselves so we can bring that into the work we do to provide a better output? That is where we are. The technology is there. And some of our problems feel so specific, right? We can't ask the, the tech guy who drops the tech to solve our problem. They aren't just going to push the button and our problem is solved. We need a way to really embrace the technology, to embrace the new skills we need, and move away from the lone financial modeler sitting in a dark room knowing end-to-end everything that's happening. With a little bit of control, we would need to relinquish new skills as a profession we need to gain. You know, I was at an event and speaking to some of the people at this event, and uh, they were speaking about the young finance professionals who are already coming in with SQL in their back pocket, Python in their back pocket. So they're not coming to grudge through dirty data and things like that. You know, they want the exciting stuff. And so we need to be ready for them and, and you know, keep that fire burning. So I definitely think it's a mindset when it comes to technology. Are we ready to go and embrace the technology? It's there. And we need to have an abundant mindset that it doesn't mean it's going to take away. There is so much work, so many problems to solve. It can only make us better. Thank you. And I, I appreciate that. And I think here for a minute, we're going to go through some of the LinkedIn because there's been some good conversation and comments on this. So I'm just going to start with the first one. One person said, biggest issue with the tech stack versus Excel is the ability of the tech stack to survive. You know, nothing worse than relying on a system only to have it sunset and restart the process. Agree, it's always painful when that happens, but there are a lot of, you know, big mature companies out there. Now, you know, if you're picking a startup, you're taking a risk and you have to weigh that against everything else. There may be a lot of benefit. You may feel they're secure, but, you know, my comment to that would just be that. Then we'll go to the next one here. And I'll give this to you, Aaron, and just get your thoughts on this comes from Aisha. So which is preferable between, you know, tech stack and Excel? Yeah, I don't know if they're mutually independent, but I get it. It all comes down to the size, scale, and growth trajectory of the organization. You know, if you're in a small organization, you know, startup like where Zach is, you know, Excel or even Google Sheets might be sufficient for the planning process. If you're in a large uh, organization, international organization with tens of thousands of employees, you need an extremely efficient system and process to be able to clearly articulate that plan across the organization to get the adoption and enable appropriate access. So it kind of really depends on the organization you know, that you're working in, in regard to the level of technology that you're going to implement. But at the end of the day, I think the most important thing is that the plan is transparent and that you can clearly communicate it across the organization and that it provides a single source of truth of where the where the organization's going um, and to focus and influence uh, you know various stakeholders across the organization. And I totally agree. It's really it's not about the tool, right? There's tools that are 40 years old, there's tools that are five years old. I, I don't think we'll list names. It's Excel can work for some companies and you may be able to stay on Excel, you know, forever. But typically, you know, in the planning and budgeting and the analysis, being able to use other tools can bring value. And so you have to figure out what works. But I think Rob make, made a great point here. I just, his comment, you know, people process product. It doesn't matter what tools you have if you don't have the right people who can adapt the process to give you what you need. 
the right people will evolve and iterate your tech stack when you empower them. And I think, Rob, I think that's a really good point. So moving on here, you know, Aaron, I know, you know, I've been a CFO at Bigger Pockets for, you know, a few years now. You know, how do you think about, you know, managing the business and the CEO through the annual budget process? Yeah. So I think it's all about relationships and communication. I think it starts with annual goals uh, for the business in the upcoming year. Once annual goals are established, I think it's really important that, you know, each department creates their own operating plan and there's cross-functional collaboration within those operating plans that are developed. Those plans should include what is each department's priorities, what investment requests they have, what are their expectations around cross-functional support, and potentially tactics to mitigate risk in the upcoming year. And when those plans are, when there's collaboration around those plans, um, there's better alignment around what's a priority for the upcoming year, and probably more importantly, what's not a priority for the upcoming year. And then fundamentally, those plans, the qualitative and quantitative out, you know, output from each one of those plans should underlie the assumptions within your financial plan, and your financial plan should be built you know, around that. So you know, that's how I typically like to implement the process, and you know, the major key stakeholders across the executive team should be you know, involved throughout the process. And kind of taking a, taking ownership around the outputs from their you know operating plans uh, through you know what gets input into the financial plan, and then ultimately the CEO should be you know bought into the reasonableness, um, but yet ambitiousness of the overall plan. Thank you, Aaron. All right, we'll we'll go over to Zach here for a question now. You know, Zach, I know you're working for a small, fast-growing business, and you alluded to this in some of the earlier answers. Can you talk about maybe some of the lessons you've learned about the budgeting process in a startup environment? So maybe what's the one or two things you would offer to people who sure. are looking to, you know, join that type of environment? What can you about? <laughs> well, so uh, I'll first caveat this. Uh, don't join a startup if you're not ready for ambiguity and change, because it happens every day. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think one thing that was was told to me a while ago was no forecast is correct, but some are useful. And I think that's the biggest thing that you can apply, especially in a situation where you have rapid growth and a very complex changing macroeconomic environment like we have right now is when you build a budget, when you build a forecast, you want to build it in a way that you know you're trying to be as correct as you can, but you're not going to be. But what you can do with it is say, here's why I made these decisions. Here's what actually happened. And here's what I've learned from that. And so when you build a budget at the beginning of the year that gets blown up by uh, COVID-19 or raising inflation or uh, you, know, you name it, right? You can look back and say, I didn't account for this. I didn't account for that. Or, you know, hey, I, I thought we'd sell based on our historical averages and, and turns out in this environment, that's not where we're, where we're at anymore. And here's the difference, right? That's, I think, the biggest and most important thing. And in order to do that, you have to really have a, I don't want to say simple, but simple is the right word. You have to have a simple model, a model that allows for you to easily jump in, find the drivers, pull those drivers out and connect those drivers right back to, to your success, whether that's on the expense side, the cog side, or the revenue side. So that's that's been my learning. Thank you, and I appreciate that. And there's a lot said to trying to keep it as simple as you can. The business, the nature of what happens, it will become more complex over time. Don't make it more complex on yourself. Yeah, it'll do that. By itself. nature, that you kind of it does it on its own. 
So moving here to Michelle, question for you. you know, I know you talk a lot about technology and I know you work on that. So what can you want, what would you offer to companies wanting to improve? I know we talked a little bit about that, but the use of technology, where would you suggest they get started down that journey if they're wanting to try to figure out how can I better incorporate, you know, what's out there into my processes? Yeah, I think there's, I mean, two ways, start where you are, you know, number one, especially in, in mid or larger organizations, you will find there's so much tech. Any tech you've heard about, someone is using it somewhere in the organization. And have those conversations about the problems you are dealing with and what would fit you better. Speak to IT and the tech teams about your problem because they may have a solution that already exists within your organization. Speak to the data and analytics teams. They could have processes, tools already at your disposal. They could have massive data sets that could be so valuable in your budgeting and forecasting um, process. So something as simple as that. And yes, as I said, it's not about the, the tool. So many people are using open source technology to solve some of the problems they have. It's articulating what is that problem and having the desire to improve it in another way or, or the space and capacity to lift your head up and say, there should be a better way of doing that now in this in 2022. So let me see what I can do. So it's just just taking that breathing room and asking those questions and just being in touch with, with the developments that are having as individuals, as individual finance professionals to ease your own pain. Your organization will be going through their own process. There will be changes happening, system changes, moving to the cloud, um, adopting new systems. Be in touch with, with what is happening there. And as I said, the, the tech person from whatever organization or whatever tool that is around may not be able to drop in and solve your problem at the click of a button. You may need to meet them halfway, but the tech is going to find its way in. We just need to embrace it and, you know, be excited about it. I think that's the thing. It is exciting. It just will take away a lot of the pain that we are experiencing. I think that's a great point. We need to embrace it. We need to be excited about it. And I mean, the thing to remember is these tools are trying to solve a pain point, right? Whatever they may be, they're not out there, you know, they're not out there to make life worth worse for us or make it harder. They're there to help us. As I say, they're an enabler. So I think that's important to remember. And we had one question here that just kind of came up from Aisha. You know, what's the one single linking relationship between budgeting and forecasting? And, and I'll add a little bit of that. Really what it is, is the annual budget is your anchor. And in each forecast, your goal is to try to figure out how you can get back to that number. What's the plan that will allow you? Sometimes you may acknowledge that, look, we're not going to get back. And so what's the best we can do? But really that forecast is to do the truth as it is today. The budget was the best estimate or the truth at the time it was developed. And sometimes before it's even complete, you know it's outdated, especially in a COVID or a rapidly changing environment. You're like, oh, it's approved. All right, well, now we got to change the forecast because something happened last night and it's blown up. But even despite that, it's really, it's that starting place for most companies. They look at it as their target for the year. And the forecast is around trying to remediate to that. And I'll just throw that out to everybody in the audience. Would anyone add anything to that? Feel free, you know, Michelle, Annette, Zach, Aaron, anything you would add to that? 
I mean, I think that was, I mean, that's spot on. You know, we, we do the budget. It's a, it's a governance process as well. It's something that goes all the way up to the board, et cetera. And we're tested against that for the 12 months to come. And that is the commitment that is made. And it remains the commitment, regardless of catastrophe or whatever does occur. The forecasting is the ongoing management of the business. How far away and how do we act to get back to that commitment or raise the alarms that look, this is not going to happen. But yeah, the, the budget does not go away. It's the story we continue telling around it. There was reasons for that budget once upon a time, and it's being able to articulate where we are and how we've moved. Thank you, Michelle. And I know, Annette, you need to drop here in a minute. She has a meeting right at the top of the hour. So we'll let you go ahead and go. But thank you for joining us today, Annette. Yes. And if everybody thank else you. can hang for a few more minutes, thanks again. We really Bye. appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye, Annette. If nobody, I'll give a minute here to see if anyone else has any questions. You can throw them in the chat. If you don't, I'll give it about a minute here. We'll just kind of wrap up and give our uh, panel here an opportunity to offer any last thoughts. So looks like we do have a couple questions here. So we'll go to the first one. I think it's Gaius. Understanding the drivers of the cost and revenue is the key for reasonable forecasting. I appreciate if you could discuss a little bit about this point. Erin, could you maybe talk a little bit about that of kind of the drivers and how, you know, that's used so often to help us forecast and why that, why that is? Yeah, so just so I understand the question, the drivers of cost and revenue should be your, your operating metrics or your KPIs uh, that mm-hmm. all build up to your financial outputs. So I think understanding your KPIs is first and foremost, and understanding that, that metric tree that then builds to your financial outputs. That's the most critical component of building your forecast um, or building an overall budget. If you don't understand those KPIs, you're, you're, you know, you're not going to be able to build a, a appropriate revenue or cost. Uh, budget or, or forecast. I'm not sure if that answers the question, but yeah, no, I think that does. I mean, I think, like you said, you really have to start with the metrics and understanding the business and what those drivers are and how those drivers influence cost and revenue. Absolutely. Right. You know, driver might be customer acquisition or churn or whatever those things are that drive your business. And it will be different for each business. So it doesn't look like we have any other questions. We had just some comments there. I'll start here and just take a minute. I want to thank everybody for joining. I really appreciated all the comments in the uh, in the chat here, and I hope we addressed everybody's question. If we missed one, I apologize. They were coming pretty fast and furious at different points. We monitored it as best we could, and I'll just give each of our panelists just an opportunity to you know add any last thoughts before we go ahead and close the session. So, Zach, anything you'd like to add? No, I, I just think you know my my advice would just be keep doing what you believe to be value add and, and try to find ways to really. Um, give insight into what happened and why. And that uh, that's how, as we understand the past, we can help to predict the future. And, and, and as FP&A people, our value isn't in the past, our value is in the future. I totally agree. Accounting looks backwards. FP&A should look forward. We had you know, a question here, and I don't know if we have time to get through all of them, but just real quick, one person asked if budgets are dead in this environment. I will say no. Should they be, that's something each business has to decide if they should go to a rolling forecast. That's that's going to be a debate that you'll see going on for a long time. And I think we'll leave it there because we're nearing the end of our time. You know, what size should a company should have a robust budgeting and forecasting? Again, you know, if you're a one-person shop, you probably don't need a detailed budget. It's going to vary a little bit by industry. You know, as soon as you take funding, you're going to need some level of forecasting and budgeting to understand cash. So there's not one one answer to that. 
but you know, there's definitely something to that. I'm going to go ahead and turn it to Aaron for just his last thoughts here. Yeah. Oh, I'd just say I appreciate the time and I appreciate everyone's questions. Yet from a budgeting and forecasting standpoint, they do serve two different purposes, but they're both very valuable in the, for your business and for understanding and for being able to communicate across the business what, you know, what is important and keeping all business owners aligned and uh, focused on what's important to be able to achieve certain goals. So at the end of the day, you know, both, both processes are important. The tech stack that you use to get there is going to be dependent on the size of your organization and maturity of the organization. But, uh, you know, your goal as a financial professional is to be a partner and to drive value, as Zach mentioned. So I, I think that that's ultimately what you should be striving to, uh, to do for the organization to drive incremental value. Thanks, Aaron. I appreciate that and totally agree. The goal is to drive incremental value. Michelle, anything you'd add? Yeah, no, thanks a lot, Paul, everyone who joined and the, the panel. It was such a valuable discussion. I think if I want to say anything, it's that, you know, both the budget and forecasting processes, they can be extremely painful, but they are not tick box exercises. We can get so much meaning. It's our day job. Uh, you know, it's what we spend so much time doing. So ask the big, complicated questions. That's what your business wants from you. Really partner with them. Um, and it, it, it can be such a valuable process if we speak to business in their language and show value. Thank you, Michelle. And I love how you speak to them in their language and show value. So we're going to go ahead and close the session there. We're right at the top of the hour. But I, again, want to thank our guests, Zach, Aaron, Michelle, and Annette, who left a few minutes ago. Thank you for being on. Really appreciate your answers. And thank you, everybody, for attending. And, uh, you know, if you didn't get a chance to attend or if you want to re-listen to this in a few weeks, it will be out as a podcast for uh, FP&A Today. So we'll let you know when that comes out. Thanks again, everyone. Thank you.